Welcome to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive, featuring conversations with performing artists and industry influencers on what it takes to succeed in the arts. I am your host, Diane Foy, and I believe that you really can make a living from your creative talents. As a publicist, podcaster, and coach, my mission is to educate, motivate, and empower you to thrive with authenticity, creativity, and purpose. Hello, and welcome to episode number three of Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. My guest today is actor-producer Glenn Scarpelli, who is best known for his role in the original One Day at a Time, produced by the legendary Norman Lear. He made his Broadway debut at age 10 in Golda with Anne Bancroft, followed by another Broadway show, Richard III, with Al Pacino. He also played Audrey Hepburn's son in the film They All Laugh. Glenn shares the valuable lessons he learned from all of the incredible talent he has worked with, including how Martin Scorsese encouraged him to go to film school. It was at a time that he felt disillusioned with acting. The truth was that Glenn felt disillusioned with the fact that he had to lie about who he was in order to be an actor because he was gay and it was the 80s and he was a teen idol. Glenn now lives in Sedona, Arizona, where he established the Sedona Now TV network. He creates shows that spotlight all that Sedona has to offer. Recently, he returned to acting with a film he produced called Sacred Journeys, which also stars his best friend, Mackenzie Phillips. It was such a great conversation, and there's so much to learn from it, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. I'm so happy to be talking to you, Diane. We've been social media friends forever. I know. It's so fun to finally put voices with names and a real relationship here. Yeah. You're so open and genuine on social media. Like, I feel like I already know you. I feel the same way about you. And we both have a love and appreciation for the fabulous Mackenzie Phillips. Yes, we certainly do. Mackenzie is one of my dearest, closest, most wonderful friends, and I hold a very special place in my heart for Mac. Yeah, like we got to work together, I don't know, quite a few years ago now. Um, But yeah, the second we started talking, it was like I'd known her for years, and we were like instant connection. Oh, that's so wonderful. You know, that's the thing about Mackenzie, and really it's anybody she meets. She's so down to earth and so authentic yeah you know i mean that's why i think so much of her life has been so public is because she doesn't hold back like she's like this is who i am this is what's going on for me right now for better or for worse (laughs) yeah and i think especially after she released her book it's like i think that's i met her after that and she was you know just telling me all kinds of things on our first conversation and i'm like you have no secrets anymore do you and she's like no Right, right. She's an open book. What's the point? Once you yeah. put it all out there, eh. That is so true. And it's so interesting because I've actually known her most of my life, obviously, because yeah. we worked together when I was like 14 years old. And, you know, we, we, I can't say we remained close over the years. And Mackenzie's talked about this recently. We did um, an event together. And, you know, she talks about like, I, I've tried to reach out over the years, but, you know, she wasn't as let's say, accessible right? <laughs> because of, you know, her drug addiction and, and the, the places she had gone to. 
And um, it wasn't until the book came out and she really dealt with her sexual abuse that I really, she became accessible to everyone. She really started to heal that. That's when I knew that she was really over that, um, you know, that chapter. Because yeah. for, for so many years, and in the beginning of the book, I mean, I'm not saying anything she doesn't already talk about, mm-hmm. but in the beginning of the book, it starts with her getting arrested at the age of 50. And I remember talking to Bonnie Franklin about this and going, gosh, I can't believe that Mac is still doing that pattern, you know? And then when the book came out. Now we know why. <laughs> now we know why. And, and it was one of those, I really knew that this was it. I really knew she had made the turn and she was on a true road to healing. And I'm just so proud of her. I'm just so, so proud of her and everything she does at Breathe Life Healing Center. Like she's on the front lines of, of all of that. She's had dedicated her life to it, which is amazing, to helping others. To helping others. And she helps so many. And I've gone to visit her there. And, you know, it's not like people think, oh, she's like some celebrity spokesperson or something. She is not. I mean, she's on the front lines. Yeah. You know, she has clients and she does group sessions and, you know, interventions and with people that are truly, truly suffering from that disease. So, you know, I'm just so proud of her. I just like look at her and I'm just in amazement how she, how she does it. And what's great when she works with her clients is she like doesn't take crap from them. Like, you know, she's told all the lies. She's been down the road. Like she knows when they're, when they're uh, justifying their behaviors and you know, she's just so wonderful. So I can't brag enough about our friend Mackenzie. Yeah. She's a fabulous woman. So we'll get back to her because you've worked with her recently. Yes, 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 yes. I saw that your father was a comic book artist. Yes. Amazing. And he did Archie comics. That's so cool. He drew Archie comics for 47 years. Wow. And literally until the day he died, I think he did his last comic the night before he passed away. So, uh, you know, he was um, quite a creative person. And I was so grateful and lucky to have him in my life because when, you know, I got the bug to act very young. Yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of came into this world knowing I love show business. So, <laughs> you know, I had parents that encouraged it you know they weren't the type my dad wasn't the t- because he was a creative man himself he wasn't the type of person to say like get a real job and get yeah. insurance and you know all that stuff he was like so excited that i had a creative gene in me and i think a lot of that was because of him what drew you to acting what what was the turning point that you're like i'm what six years old and you're like i want to be an actor I was five, five. and <laughs> I went on stage in a kindergarten play and I just, I, the first time I ever foot, set foot on stage, I was like, I'm home. <laughs> so <laughs> I started begging my mom and dad at that stage, at that, at that point. And um, at first they weren't like, okay, you know, they were just like excited that I, I liked it. But they didn't really see, you know, they were like, oh, this is probably just a phase. But I literally begged for about three years straight, please, 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 please. And then certain things happened in all our lives. And then mom was finally like, I wore her down, put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, well, maybe this would be good for me too. Because 
as a child actor, it requires so much of your parents' love and attention. Yeah. So, you know, that's really where they came in. And um, I had a friend doing commercials in New York City. I was so grateful and fortunate to grow up in New York because geography plays a big role in those sorts of decisions. And um, I met a, a, a manager. Her name was Muriel Carl. She was at 888th Avenue. Um, and we went there for, you know, to be interviewed and, and she signed me right away. One quick story about that though. She wanted to change my name. Oh yeah. She wanted, yeah. She said, what's your, what's your, what's your middle name? Cause she thought Scarpelli was too ethnic. And I said, my middle name is Christopher. She goes from now on you're Glenn Christopher. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> the little precocious eight year old that I was. <laughs> And I, I and, and she said, well, it's too ethnic. I said, tell that to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So she said, she said, um, okay, I can't fight that. She goes, we'll try it. We'll see. Yeah. And, and I booked my first commercial I ever went on. I booked it. Wow. So I took that as a sign that maybe I was on the right path. And you worked with like, crazy legends um <laughs> on broadway <laughs> like eight years old you're with on broadway with ann Bancroft, yeah. and then you're on broadway again with al pacino like yes. what the <laughs> <laughs> what what are some of the what lessons did you learn from them Let's start with Golda because that was my broadway debut i was um probably nine when i did Golda, and that just brought so many, it just woke me up to so many things. First of all, the discipline that actors need. You know, I was very young, but I was shown with such professional, I was playing with such professionals that I was shown, you know, a real example of how to be a professional and how to stay focused. I mean, and that's tough for a nine-year-old, you know? You know, I, I, I certainly had my... um you know, uh, wants to like go out and run around and play and get wild. And I had a lot of energy, but I also just loved the business so much. I really, truly, truly loved acting. And I, I learned, okay, then this is what I'm here to do and stay in the moment. And that's, what's so wonderful about acting. And I think it becomes a life lesson in general when you're in a scene, when you're, when you're really, really, tapped in you're in the moment and that was really one of the best lessons I ever had like nothing else existed when I was in that scene it didn't matter what was going on at home or what my dog was saying or what you know or what my dog was doing or like nothing else was distracting because I just loved it so much so that was a huge lesson that came off of just you know being on Broadway and and following the the creative process to get to Broadway but in addition to that, one of the things that was really special about that show for me was Golda Meir herself. It was the life story, of course, of Golda Meir. And Anne Bancroft played Golda. I played her son, Menachem. And um, Golda, I mean, Golda really played a role in the development of the play. So we got to know Golda pretty well. And, you know, just having her as an influence in my life, first of all, was beyond belief. I look at it now. I don't know if I had the appreciation for it then 
at nine years old, but I certainly do now at 52 years old, <laughs> right. Look, looking back and going, oh my gosh, like that was quite a woman and to have her as an influence. And she did say something to me that stuck with me my entire life. And, and I, I shared this with you, but you know, she, I'm not the only person she's ever shared, said this to. This is kind of was part of her advice. But for me, it was something that I heard loud and clear. And I really applied it to the rest of my life, which was be the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. It was good. I'm like, and, and as I got older, I really started to, you know, understand better and better. I mean, I'm still trying to understand what that means because yeah. I think we're, we're constantly growing. We're work in progress. <laughs> we're all a work in progress. It's all about the, the journey, not the destination necessarily. So, you know, I, I, I feel like when she said that to me, I applied that to you know, so many different ways in my life, including the many relationships that I've been in. You know, it's like, we don't really, I'm not a believer of you complete me. You know, I think what she was trying to say to me and what I, what I do believe is my part of my personal growth is I complete me. Right. And then I can be in a relationship with someone who completes themselves too. And then it's that much stronger and that much healthier. So, you know, I, I certainly had my dance with codependency over the years. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what she was referring to. Be the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. So that was my big lesson from Golda. Wow. That's a good thing to always keep in the back of your head. Yes, indeed. I think of it often, Diane. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I really do. I think of those words um, very, very often. And she was just such a grandma to all the kids on the show. It's so funny because like as much as all the actors were wonderful, I, I feel like Golda herself can, and Annie too, and Bancroft connected with the kids on the show. So on, like they were the mamas, right? Like they just loved being surrounded by the kids. You know, I think there were four of us, there were two of us and then two understudies. And, um, and I have so many wonderful like pictures and there were so many wonderful memories of going to dinner and hanging out in the rehearsal hall and then, you know, on the road. And it was really, really a wonderful experience. Wow. And what about Al Pacino? Al Pacino. He's kind of a legend, you know? Yeah. He's, you know, he does okay. So <laughs> he, had, he had a nice little career. Um, uh, Al Pacino. So I'm an Italian New Yorker. And Al Pacino is a god in my house, okay? So when I even thought of, I mean, when I first heard that I was going to be auditioning for Richard III on Broadway with Al Pacino, you know, I was kind of blown away. And then three callbacks later, I finally met him. And it had been narrowed down probably to about me and about four other guys for other kids. And we went in to read with Al Pacino. And when it was my turn, I went in and I remember this so clearly. He like had this, it was freezing. It was in New York. It was absolutely freezing. And it was um, downtown in like this little space. And um, he had this like hat on and he was kind of like frumpy and greasy. <laughs> like he wasn't like all, you know, superstar looking you know he was just very 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 real he was always so real so you know i walk in and, and i meet him and 
And I was kind of nervous, I have to be admit. I mean, this is Al Pacino after all. And he was just so wonderful to me. And I read the scene, and of course, it's Shakespeare's Richard III. Now I'm about, I would say I'm about 11 going on 12. No, actually, I was 12, because I actually turned 13 during the run of that show. And I'm, you know, reading the scene, and and he kind of looks at me, and he says, is your mom outside? I said, yeah, she's in the the waiting room. So he gets up, he walks out, and and he says, who's Glenn's mom? And my mother almost like, you know, passed out. (laughs) I can remember the look on her face. She turned white and she said, me. And he goes, do you mind if I take Glenn downstairs and we could just have a Coke downstairs as a little coffee shop? And my mother's like, no, take my kid anywhere you want. You're Al Pacino. (laughs) So we went downstairs and he said, so tell me, do you kind of, do you know what the scene is about? Do you know what the play is about? And I said, I have no clue. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm 12 and it's Shakespeare, okay? And he goes, "Let's." And I thought. So he, at in the midst of, he ordered a cup of coffee, got me a Coke, and we. He told me the whole play, and he kind of explained it to me in layman terms. You know, I'm your uncle, and you're in line to become king, and I'm really a bad person. I really want to become king, and I would need to kill you to become king. <laughs> And you kind of know this already about me. And I'm like, oh, and it all started to click. Right. And then I, I asked him some specific, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? Because it was, you know, Shakespeare. And, and he kind of went over it very clearly, so patient. And then we went back upstairs. We read the scene one more time. And by the time I lived on Staten Island, that's where I was born and raised, Staten Island, New York. So by the time we drove from, from lower Manhattan back to Staten Island, the phone was ringing and I got the part. Wow. So it was really incredible and very, very exciting. And you asked me what lessons did I learn? Well, in addition to you know, all the acting lessons. And there's one I will share with you. I want to say first, he said to me, and this was what I also carried throughout my career and into my, uh, into my whole life, which was, he said, never believe your own press. And I found that very interesting as time went on and I actually got press (laughs) because so much of the persona of what people want to throw at you isn't necessarily who you need to be. Especially when you're so young, like you're everyone, the press just kind of takes over and you are this like, you know, a few years from, from the time we're talking about, you're like this big teen idol. A commodity and the teen idol thing, especially because teen idol is something that can certainly, I don't know, mess your head up a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, projected onto you a sex appeal or you know something like that and I often thought of that when I went into that world what Al said to me about no no don't believe your own press yeah and this is a man who really knows you know and, and he didn't he didn't he didn't like read reviews he saw very few of his films you know he like wasn't he, he wasn't about that he was about the acting but he wasn't about everything that came after it Right. You know, the the acclaim and the ego and, you know, he wasn't about all that, honestly. Um, so down to earth and such a real person. But I'll share with you one more story because this is a real actor's story. One night on, we were, he, he loved to change things up. He would absolutely change his 
costumes. Like one night he wanted to do it in jeans. Like he just didn't feel like putting on the costume. So he wanted to keep the show fresh, 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 fresh. And one night we're doing a scene and he took my face and he kissed it so hard. He like licked my cheek and all his saliva was like dripping down my face <laughs> during the, during the show. And I just looked at him and I took my hand and I just wiped my face like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and the audience freaking went crazy. They laughed. It was the biggest laugh in the entire show, which that scene is not funny. I was going to say, it's not really a comedy. <laughs> no, no. And we, but he looked at me and he went, <sighs> like his eyes just lit up that he did something. And I totally in the moment just reacted like a kid would react to that. You know, my uncle is kissing me. Are you freaking kidding me? And it was just this very cool moment that just spontaneously happened. And he was so excited and he came off the stage we're gonna leave that in oh my god that was the greatest thing like he was like a kid in a candy star and we left it in for maybe three nights and then we stopped doing that yeah because even that got a little stale but it was that moment and those were the moments that i remember so clearly about working with pacino because he was so um available for whatever was fresh and whatever was authentic. And, well, you know, as a 12-year-old actor, I mean, you can't get better, um, you know, advice or, or lessons than something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hands-on. And then more legends coming your way. Uh, you were in the film They All Laughed with Audrey Hepburn and John Ritter. Yes. All my scenes were with Audrey. I didn't have one scene with John. Okay. It was the film had like two different storylines that kind of blend at one point, but it was more Audrey and John blending than me. Right. But we worked together quite a bit on the, um, on the film and we were all there together quite a bit. And I remember we'll start with John because the Audrey stuff is so special in my heart. I definitely have to share that because there was no one on this planet like Audrey Hepburn. Right. But the first time I met John, we would do, they did do some, Peter wanted to do some rehearsal in a rehearsal hall just to kind of groove and get the actors to get to know each other and so on and so forth before we actually set foot on the set. And I remember the first time I met John, like he was huge. I mean, Three's Company was like the number one show on, on the planet. And, and I was a big fan and I just loved him so much. And he just came over to me. I remember walking in, he came over to me, Glenn Scarbelli. Oh my gosh. I've heard so many incredible things about you. And he like picked me up and he like hugged me. And he just made me feel so incredibly welcomed and it just took all the pressure off of i think i'm about to meet john ritter <laughs> which was so fun so that's my little john ritter story but audrey in addition to being in my opinion one of the greatest stars the planet has ever seen you know she was also everything you've ever read about her humanitarian aspects was that times 100 like this woman came from a place that was so warm and kind and down to earth and loving. I mean, I can't brag enough about how real and what a wonderful human being Audrey Hepburn was. And it showed because like on the set, she knew everyone's names, like, like everyone, the PAs, like she would call everybody by their name 
And, oh, here's a fun story. So there's a, there's a, there's a sequence in They All Laughed where Audrey um, and I have to walk from Rockefeller Center up to the Plaza Hotel. And Peter Bogdanovich, who directed the film, also wrote the film, wanted to do this more in a hidden camera kind of way than in necessarily, you know, closing streets and getting extras and so on and so forth. So I mean, we shot the sequence. I mean, in the film, maybe it's 10 minutes because there's a lot that happens on the way there. But I mean, we might have been shooting this for like six, seven days at least maybe two weeks was just the sequence of the film. And we, my mom was up at, up at um, the plaza and we knew we would not have dressing rooms along the way because they didn't want to bring in the big star wagons and all that and bring attention to the fact that we were shooting a movie. So they were going to hide Audrey and I, and John was part of this too. This is where I got to hang out with him quite a bit because he was also kind of on the street and our our storylines cross in the film, but we didn't actually act together. But we knew that they were going to be hiding us in these areas and stores and stuff along Fifth Avenue, of which, like, we weren't going to have a dressing room. So, and my mom wasn't going to be able to be with me because she had to stay up at um, the Plaza Hotel. So Audrey went over to my mother and said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of him. I'll keep an eye on him. So for the entire time we shot that entire sequence, Audrey was like my guardian. Right. She held my hand. She said, darling, come sit with me. And she would be like, we'd be in all these different kinds of stores, shoe stores and you know, clothing stores. But there was this one time we went into this book slash music store. And we were just sitting down. She goes, darling, sit with me, sit with me. And we just started chit-chatting. And she was asking about school and all this stuff. And, and then she said are you familiar with classical music? And I said, you know, not so much. (laughs) I kind of like Joan Jett. So she said, let me, let me, let me share some of, I love classical music and let me tell you why. Let me share some of why I love classical music. And then she started walking me around the store and we went through like old tapes and Bach and Brahm and, you know, all these different like history of classical music per Audrey Hepburn. And she just played things for me and showed me things and talked, told me these stories and different concerts she went to and symphonies. And it was just remarkable. It was just unbelievable how much she wanted to share with me and how warm, because that was really a passion of hers. So cut to the rap party, which was incredible, but sad, bittersweet, because I believe that was the last time I ever did see Audrey. I don't think I ever saw her once the film came out because she had moved, she pretty much lived in Switzerland at the time. And um, she says to me, I have something for you. And I said, really? And she bought me a wrap party gift. And I opened the card and it said, to my only movie son, because she never played a mom in any other feature film. That's true. So I'm the only person that ever played her son in a feature film, which I didn't even know until she wrote that in the card. And she said to my only movie son, and it was just lovely about working together and so on and so forth. And then I opened the gift and she bought me all the classical music on those tapes that day without me knowing it. She bought me the entire series of everything she taught me 
about wow. all the different classical music. So it just, I mean, who does that? That's just so sweet. And did it work? Did you become interested in classical music? Well, I love classical music. Yes, indeed. I couldn't say that it's my favorite music. <laughs> I didn't have the passion she had right. necessarily, but I certainly can grow to appreciate it. And totally appreciate it. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, just a wonderful, just a wonderful woman. So my first question about One Day at a Time, it was kind of groundbreaking at the time for that show. Like I read that it was the only second sitcom to ever fit, feature a divorced mom. Yes. Isn't that amazing? And they touched on a lot of topics that uh, were not normally dealt with back then. What do you remember most about that time working with those actors and on that show? Gosh, you know, it was such a big part of my life. And because we all remained so close throughout the years to this day, um, the memories just keep coming, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's hard to, to, to find just a few things about that. But, you know, number one, um, I had come on the show when Mackenzie was first um, fired for her drug problem. Right. So... You know, it was interesting. They would had all been kind of rocking and rolling. The show was a huge hit. And it was one of those things that, you know, I'm stepping into a world that already is a nucleus of a family. So I was kind of a little nervous, honestly, when I first came on the show. Let me tell you, though, I had known Valerie Bertinelli before. And she's one of the reasons I got on that show. Oh, yeah? Yes. I had done a, a pilot with one of her with a friend of hers and um, we got to know each other. And then Valerie came to see Richard the third with Pacino. And I very rarely ever asked Pacino to meet anyone because he just wasn't that guy. Yeah. You know, he didn't want accolades. Like he wanted to do the play and go home. Yeah. You know, so, so, but I asked him, I said, listen, I have a really dear friend and she's kind of a big TV star. And would you be willing, can you meet her? He goes, he goes, yeah, who is she? And I, I said, and he never heard of the show, never watched TV. He's like, whatever. He said, but if she's a friend of yours, I'd be happy to meet her. So I brought Val. I just thought it was cool at 12 years old to introduce Valerie Bertinelli to Al Pacino. I just thought yeah, that was cool. You're the cool guy. I was like, that's fun, right? So, so I was like, Al, Val, Val, Al. It was very cool. So we're walking out of the court theater on 48th Street. And Valerie says to me, oh, my God, Glenn, that was so exciting. Thank you so much for in introducing me to Pacino. If there's anything I could ever do for you, just ask. <laughs> so about that one day at a time show. <laughs> yeah, so cut to, I didn't say anything. I just kind of at 12 years old was like, yeah, Valerie Bertinelli owes me one. That can't be a bad thing. <laughs> So um, I was a bit savvy. So um, now cut to mom is in Staten Island, New York, and she's reading an article in TV Guide about Mackenzie being fired for one day at a time and how they're looking at adding a 14-year-old boy. And I think I was 14. So I was like, maybe I'll ask Valerie. So I reached out to Valerie and Valerie got me the audition. I mean, I still had to audition. Yeah. But, you know, she made a, she went, oh my gosh, Glenn, you, that, you'd be so perfect. They're looking, Bonnie, Bonnie, who had casting approval at the time, throughout the entire series, I think she had casting approval. Bonnie was looking for some, a child with theater credits because she felt if we're going to bring another regular 
person, another regular on the show that's a child, you know, doing sitcoms is a lot like doing theater. You know, you have to really have to wait for laughs and have a, a certain kind of timing that um, theater kind of uh, trains you for. So she was like, oh my gosh, you'd be great for this because I saw you on Broadway. I know you do theater. So anyway, she made the phone call. I then auditioned originally in New York City. They flew me out to LA and I read for Bonnie. And Bonnie and I had a connection from the moment we laid eyes on each other. I mean, and honestly, till the day she died. She and I were so close. I just love her. I, I, I can't even tell you how much I love Bonnie Franklin. She was everything to me on that show. I mean, they were all so close. And Pat Harrington, oh my gosh, I learned so many techniques from the great, late Pat Harrington. He was absolutely incredible. Yeah, and you probably had, you had a lot of scenes with him. A lot of scenes, because they really started to realize we had such a great chemistry that they started to write a lot for Schneider and Alex. And Pat even had in his contract that he would write several episodes a year. And very often he wrote shows about he and I. So that was quite the compliment. Yeah. So, great. yeah, so that was great. But working with Bond, there was just something about, you know, because she's a Broadway actress too. So, you know, I, I think we had a lot of our, uh, our thespian background in common. Yeah. And not a lot of actors at 14 would have had that theater experience as well. Right. And her idol was Audrey Hepburn. Because I, I always told her, I went from Audrey Hepburn to Bonnie Franklin. And she said, oh, my God, honey, don't say it like that. <laughs> You took a few steps down. I said, no, sweetheart. I took a few steps up. And I miss her. I miss her so much. Another mom figure. A total mom figure. She was a mom figure to everyone on that show. And the one thing I'd like to say about that in regards to Bonnie in particular, and really everyone, but Bonnie in particular, was she really took responsibility for the quality of that show. She, she you know... Here's, here's a great example of what I'm talking about. On Monday mornings, we do a table read. And then we would, most shows, you know, that's it. You do the table read, you start rehearsing, the writers go off and start rewriting. But not on one day at a time. One day at a time, the actors were so involved, and this was thanks to Norman and Norman Lear's whole creative process with all of his shows and all of his casts, where he really made it a group effort because it, it is a team effort, you know, to make something like that with that much chemistry to make it a hit. So we would sit down, we'd take a little break, and then we'd sit down and go page one, page two, page three. And Bonnie would come in with all these notes and Pat would come in with notes and Val would come in with notes and Mac would come in with notes. Like whoever, like everybody was in it to win it. And at first, I kind of didn't say much because here I am, this 14-year-old boy on this huge hit show. I'm kind of the newbie. And I kind of didn't know if I was welcome to like give my input on rewrites. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, I was like, okay. So then one time, Vaughn pulled me aside. She said, hey, I never see you say anything at, these, at, the, at, the, uh, at the table reads. And I said, oh, I could say something? She goes, honey, these 65-year-old men don't know how to write for a 14-year-old boy. You know what it's like to be a 14-year-old boy. I want you to speak up. I want you to speak up. I want you to come in with ideas. We want them. 
And I was like, oh, <laughs> kind of didn't know. <laughs> but what a wonderful, like, um, uh, lesson to also not only be there as an actor but to be part of the development the the development of the character yeah and that's an amazing experience to have that where they're open to it like you're welcome to put in your ideas and thoughts it's amazing it was amazing i i worked on a few other shows after that that i i don't want to mention the names but i thought that was the process just in general right because you don't know any better I didn't know any better. I thought this is what we do. So I came in one time for this other show that I brought all these notes and all these ideas. Oh, and they told you to shut up and get out. Oh, pretty much. I, I said, I said, um, they said, your call time after we did the table read, they said, your call time tomorrow is 10 a.m. I said, okay. And they said, well, we'll see you then. And I said, oh, aren't we going to do rewrites? And then the writer said, uh, we are. And I was like, oh, <laughs> So it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so not every show includes the actors to do the rewrites. So that was quite a lesson and, um, and really a, a, a shaping for, you know, the creative process, a real example from, for such a young person to realize when you're working with those at that level, you know, of those, of those professionals to see how it's done, like behind the veil. So I look at that as, you know, that's why I say when I got one day at a time, I really won the lottery. And at some point on that show, Mackenzie came back. Mackenzie came back. Do you remember the day you met her? Oh my gosh. Okay. So Val and Mac had a studio teacher named Gladys. Gladys Hirsch is her name. And I inherited her because when Mac got fired and Valerie, um, graduated they wanted to keep Gladys on the show too and Gladys became my studio teacher who I became so close with I am still close with to this day I just answered an email from her before I got on the phone with you Diane wow. so that's how close I am she's she's like 90 and we've remained close 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 throughout these entire 35 years um Gladys Hirsch. So Gladys was always saying, oh, you're going to love Mackenzie. You're going to love Mackenzie. But I was a little nervous because like, I hope she didn't see it as like I was replacing her or I wanted to replace. I just didn't know. Yeah. You know, and, and Val and Valerie and uh, Gladys were like, oh my God, that's not, you have no idea. She's so down to earth. You're going to love her and so on and so forth. So the day I knew she was coming back, it was uh, Julie Returns. It was a two-parter. The episode was called Julie Returns Part One. And that morning I was like really nervous. And I had been on the show now for a while. And so I wasn't nervous about being on the show. It was about Mackenzie. And I walked in and we had a rehearsal hall. We actually rehearsed the first um, three days in rehearsal hall. And then we went on the stage on Thursdays. So this was Monday morning at the rehearsal hall. And, and I walked in and Mac just comes running up to me going, Glenn, I love you on the show. You did such a great job. I've heard so many great things about you. And she was just so incredible. Like I was just like, oh, relief. <laughs> such a relief. And honestly, from that moment on, we became lifelong friends. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, out of everybody on the show, you know, I certainly talk to and Mackenzie the most and uh, I see her the most. So 
yeah, it was just a wonderful, I mean, it's just so, it, we talk about it even from a spiritual perspective of how when she was going through some tough times that I kind of came in and held the space for her. Right. And then, and then I thought honestly that I wasn't going to be on the show anymore once they brought her back. Right. Yeah. She comes back. You're like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know because they actually were, they had gotten rid of my dad on the show. Um, and they had moved me in kind of as like the stepbrother and Romano basically adopts Alex on the show. But I didn't know like now that Mac was back, what was that all going to look like? And and did that total opposite. Like I think I got more embedded. The whole idea of now there was another young person on the show because they were all in their twenties now at that point. So that changed the dynamic a little bit. And Romano still needed to have those issues that moms have with teenagers. Yeah, which is kind of what the show was about from the get go. So you know, I think when Matt came back, there was just so much more to play off because now they had a chance to do all those kinds of storylines with a boy. Right. So, you know, some of the, some of the episodes that came after that were just so poignant for me and some of my favorite moments ever as an actor, honestly. And you weren't on the show to the end. Did, at what point did you leave the show? Well, I left the show... Um, the year before it ended. And honestly, we all thought it was going to end. Bonnie pretty much said she wasn't going to come back. And then I was offered another series on NBC. And like, I was so excited to have another show. It was a wonderful show. And Jillian was the star of that show. And um, uh, it was called Jennifer Slept Here on NBC. So I had kind of taken that already. And then Bond was like, okay, I'll do one more year. But they knew they were wrapping everything up. And, and I think my character was going to come on for six episodes. And then um, it, the schedules just didn't work out because I had already accepted this other role, which I'm so grateful I did, you know, because, and at that point when I did, I certainly thought, well, here's a chance to start from scratch. Now, the show didn't make it. I think it only did, we only did 13 episodes of Jennifer Slept Here. It was about a ghost that was, on, that was um, seen by only one boy. And um, it was a really cute show. It was very different than One Day at a Time. But I was just so grateful to have, you know, an offer for something else right off of that. So I was sad I didn't go back to the show. And I was sad I couldn't coordinate even a final episode. But I was very committed to NBC. NBC also put me on a daytime show, which I co-hosted with the great Peter Marshall and Leslie Uggams who I love, who I just saw in New York on Mother's Day. Um, Jerry, my boyfriend, and I went out to dinner with uh, Leslie and her family. It was so fun to catch up with her. And um, so I was on kind of two series at that point. They had me on a daytime show and the sitcom. So I just didn't get back for that. But I went to the final taping and I went to the, um, to the rap party. And my heart was there. But physically I wasn't <laughs> you had a you started singing and you had an album out how did that come about oh my gosh the album um I'd always loved singing you know I did some musical theater and you know I'll be honest with you Diane I always considered myself an actor who sings okay and that's different than a singer you know do you, do you know what I'm saying by the difference there yeah yeah you know, I loved singing, but I loved singing. I loved performing. So 
it was interesting when I, be, when I was offered the deal through CBS Records, and it all became from the teen magazine stuff. I mean, that's why I think they reached out to me. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think I remember at that time, there was a lot of actor turned singers, you know, because they, they wanted to capitalize on, you know, the young actors that had all this press. It's like, okay, let's make them sing now. Exactly. I think my friend Willie Ames had an album and Scott Baio had an album and John Schneider had an album. And I may have the Scott Baio albums. Do you? <laughs> I may have them. I just saw Scott this summer. It was so fun to catch up with him. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, so, so that was kind of a thing back then. I was just so thrilled because I really do love singing. And to have the experience in the studio, which I hadn't had much of that. I had, I had been performing live primarily. So to have an actual in-studio experience was pretty wonderful and incredible. And so many things came off of that, having that album. I got to do, I had my own float at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which was incredible. I got to sing my single. I rode the doodle bug <laughs> down the streets of New York City. But that came off of having the album. And then I did um, American Bandstand with Dick Clark which was so incredible. Like all those experiences came off having the album. And someone actually recently sent me um, the clip from American Bandstand and I just watched it very recently. I'll share it on my Throwback Thursdays one of these days. I saw it. I saw the interview part, but I didn't see the song. I know. Someone sent me the song and it, it was so fun. They just taped it off TV. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's not the greatest it's not the greatest video, but it's it's very cool. And it was so wonderful to hear Dick Clark's introduction of me. That was what I loved the most. I was like, oh my gosh, like Dick Clark said my name. <laughs> yeah, he was like the ultimate host. That show is so important in the history of rock and roll and music in general. Oh my gosh, totally. And all the different shows that that man brought to the table. For sure, yeah. That he produced. And, you know, it was such a part of our iconic, um, you know, classic TV. So that was pretty cool. So, yeah, the, the record was an act a wonderful, wonderful experience. I loved it. And you also mentioned when we first started this interview, we were talking about my dad. And we were talking about how wonderful it was for him to do Archie. But I have to say... I also got in the Archie comics because of him. And that was incredible. And that had to do with One Day at a Time and the Teen Beat magazines and all that jazz too. Because they were looking to kind of bring Archie into that decade. Because the characters, it's interesting with Archie, the characters never age, but they reflect the times. Yeah. So, like, you know, when cell phones came around, they started using cell phones. Right. But yet they were kind of stuck in the 50s. And now you look at Riverdale, right? That's, that's a great example of that. So it's pretty cool. Cool. So getting a chance to do that, that was thanks to my dad. And, and I really, I loved that experience too. Yeah. So part of what I do in my coaching with artists is I really believe it's important to hit pause and take some time to explore who you really are, what your core values are, what your beliefs are, what you really want. Because I find a lot of artists, like, they just jump in. And 
I think you could have used that. Um, when you were 17, 18, you made the decision to leave acting. Yeah. And is that part of it? Is that you needed time to kind of figure out who you were because the marketing machine was kind of dictated your persona. You hit it right on the head. Absolutely. And on, you know, throw into the mix too that I knew I was gay and you can't like in those days, this was 1985, 1986. You just weren't gay and out in show business. You weren't going to get any straight acting roles. That's what they said, you know, um, you know, it, it was also, I think a lot of the studios and producers were afraid that people would turn away from projects if they knew the stars were gay. So, you know, there was a lot of discrimination. Plus AIDS had just hit the planet and the amount of discrimination against the gay community was, you know, a hundred times worse than it is now. So it was a really tough time internally for me. And I fell in love with this guy. His name was Gary Scalzo. And he was a theatrical manager in New York. And I fell madly in love. And I really chose that love over my career for a while. Because I really just wanted to be true to myself. And I wanted privacy. And one thing I wasn't getting was privacy. I had quite a microscope on, um, um, you know, um, a magnifying glass on me. So I kind of wanted to run away. What a better place to run away to than New York City. I also read that Martin Scorsese encouraged you to quit acting and go to film school. Yes. Oh, my God. You really did some good research there. <laughs> I did research. <laughs> You're good, Diane. I'm impressed. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, so another legend you worked with. And yeah, that was incredible. And one of my dearest friends for my, my lifelong friends is his daughter, Kathy Scorsese, who I still am the closest to, to this day. We're lifelong friends and I just adore Kath. And Marty, Marty offered me a role. I got to know him pretty well through Kathy and we would go to dinner at his house and so on and so forth. And, um, and he offered me a role, a small part, but a wonderful part in um, a, uh, an NBC anthology series called Amazing Stories. And it was actually produced by Steven Spielberg. And Steven got all his best top friend directors to direct an episode each. And Marty asked me to be in that one. And while I was on the set of that, we shot that in Malibu. While I was on the set, you know, I shared with him that I was becoming a little disillusioned with acting. And what I really was, and I didn't admit, was I was becoming disillusioned with the fact that I had to lie about who I was to be an actor. Yeah. And really, that was the crux of it. Like, I didn't know if I was willing to do that anymore. Like, I just wanted to be real to myself. And I didn't see anything wrong with being gay. Who I am, and it's real, and it's, you know, how I was born, and... Nobody did anything to make me gay. And, you know, I just didn't understand it. So I was just like, you know, maybe I just need to like step away and find another way to express myself. So Marty, and without, without all that background, beknownst to him, um, he just said, hey, Jim, think about just going to film school. You don't have to be an actor. But, you know, if you love the business, you should think about going to film school. So he... Um, had gone to NYU, so he recommended that. He actually made a phone call for me, which was very sweet. Wow, that's amazing. Which was amazing. That's a good stamp of approval. Yes, indeed. Getting you know, I didn't, 
getting into school exactly. And I took a class called Scorsese Coppola, and which was pretty cool. Um, but I, I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't finish. I didn't actually graduate from NYU film school because when I did fall in love with Gary, um, I moved to New York and he was diagnosed HIV positive in 1987. And that changed the entire course of my life. That one day when he was diagnosed, you know, sent me on a, 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 a spiral for a little while honestly, of really doing some introspective, who am I? What am I doing? What is this thing called life? What is going on here? (laughs) I gave up everything to be in this relationship and now he's being taken away. Are you kidding me? You know, and it was so harsh and I'd been losing so many friends in that era anyway. I mean, the industry lost so many people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it was a really tough time. And um, and I knew that this was hitting as close to home as possible without it being me. And it wasn't. I saved my life. You know, I, I thank show business for saving my life. Because one of the things that being a child actor, um, one of the upsides to being a child actor is you live a very worldly life. It's not hidden. So even though I hadn't come out or I hadn't been with a man until I was 18, 19 with Gar, um, I knew I was gay. So when AIDS hit in the 80s, I knew one of the first people that ever died of it when they were still calling it the gay cancer before it was even known to be AIDS. And I paid attention. I said, you know, someday I'm going to be with a guy. So maybe I need to pay attention to the do's and don'ts of this whole endeavor to protect myself. So when I did become sexually active, I kind of knew how to. Gary was 11 years older than me, and his generation, you know, wasn't as fortunate because it hit that generation unbeknownst to them. So I was at least educated, and education saved my life, and it was because I was in show business. I, I didn't live a sheltered life. Let's put it that way. Right, yeah. And there's something to say for that, you know? Sex ed is a very important part of our development. It certainly saved, it saved my life, literally. So, I mean, just to go on with that a little bit, um, I, went on a, I went on quite a spiritual quest, and I did some serious introspe- introspective time of, like you were saying, take a little deep breath and find out who you are. You know, I went through a time, Gary did die in 1992, and I went through a time of being a little angry at God and angry at life and why me and playing victim and all that jazz, when, which is part of the grief process, you know. I just hadn't, hadn't known it like that before. And I just kind of left everything and said, I'm going on a spiritual walkabout. You want to show me what this life is about, God? Then show me. And I really believe I was shown things because I listened. I, like opened, I, had my, I set my consciousness open to listen. And, and if this is true, then show me. And what I, you know, in, in a nutshell, the way I can explain it now in retrospect is I just shown that I was truly loved. You know, so no matter what your beliefs are, love is the key. And I felt loved for everything I was, as perfect as I am, you know, in, in loved in the perfect way. You know, I'm gay. I have all these, you know, troubles, whatever. 
I'm still loved so greatly. So that's where I, that's where I kind of set my intentions to find more, to find out more about. And one thing led to another to, and led me to Sedona, Arizona, which is where I live to this day. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how did that come about? Was it part of this? Somehow you were drawn to Sedona? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I had a friend who was actually a medium in Queens, in Astoria, Queens, who moved here. And on my walkabout, I lived in Belize, Central America for a little while. I kind of just went off the grid and fished for my food. I like, lived survivor <laughs> in, in Belize for about six, seven months. Yeah, I needed to get as far away from... So you didn't go straight from New York to Arizona. There were some other countries in there. Yeah, I did a little spiritual walkabout. But, but, but Sedona was... I had visited Sedona. And honestly, from the moment I set foot into... I was in Sedona maybe 30 seconds driving into, like, past this beautiful rock called Bell Rock. And I did get these chills, and I felt like I came home. Like, I was like, oh, my God, I think I just came home. Wow. Like, this is, this is incredible. Now, it took me years before I actually moved here. But I did have that feeling and that thought the second I got here. So... I feel Sedona was a calling. I truly do. I'm grateful to be here now. Um, it's, it's been the most incredible, wonderful thing in my life. And uh, it was part of my spiritual journey. You know, it's, there is a very incredible energy here. Have you been here, Diane? I have not. I didn't even know anything about Sedona until we started becoming Facebook friends. Oh. I think you are the sp spokesperson. <laughs> for, for Sedona. I'm like, I start watching videos you post and photos and I'm like, I want to go there. We got to get you out here, sister. And you know what really wanted me to go? What I think it was maybe a few years ago. What, is, what was that World Wisdom Days about? Yes, Jerry, my partner. I know, so I have another, I have a beautiful man in my life, Jerry Gilden. Life did move on after all of that stuff in my past. And I have, um, I own a local TV station here. I have Jerry in my life. We have a beautiful home. We own some vacation rentals. Like I've really set shop in Sedona. And he and I wanted to do a project together. Um, and World Wisdom was our first project together. And basically what I wanted to do is just bring incredible, wonderful minds talking about the wisdom of the world and not necessarily even in a spiritual way, yet it did have, of course, spiritual lessons and not necessarily in, you know, any kind of way, but a mainstream way of where are we at in our lives and where are we headed and what does this planet look like and how can we grow? So Norman Lear... God bless him, said yes as our keynote speaker opening night of, season, of year two of World Wisdom Days. And I brought Mackenzie out, and she and I um, moderated an evening with Norman Lear at the Sedona Performing Arts Center. Wow. And it was one of my most incredible, I will remember that night forever and ever and ever. It was, it's so special in my heart, Diane. I can't even tell you. Just having Uncle Norman and my sister Mac come to Sedona to support us and, and have such a, I mean, it was sold out of course. And, and it was just the things we talked about and the stories he told. And it was so, so special. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from him? The biggest lesson I learned from him. Well, first of all, I asked him not, I asked him during that moderation, but really off stage many years ago, what's his secret to his endurance. The man is 96 
and he's still producing television. I think um, he was written in the Book of World Records as the oldest living working producer ever in show business. That's amazing. 96, come on. 96. He just signed a two-year development deal with Sony at 96. Well, he should be all of our idols. He should be all of our idols. So, so he had said, I, I had asked him, like, what's your key? What was the key? What's the deal with your endurance? And he said, laughter. He said what he feels sustained him and what kept him healthy was truly laughter. And how in life he surrounded himself with the funniest people the planet has ever seen. And even though he had hardships and, you know, stress, of course, having 10 shows on the air at the same time, that's not easy. Yeah. He, called, he calls it joyful stress because through it all, he laughed. So, you know, that is my, that is my one huge takeaway from Norman Lear. And I think about it every day. So on days when things aren't seem to be too funny, yeah. I still try to find something funny about him. <laughs> I mean, because I think it's true. I really think there's a healing tonic to laughter. Yeah, yeah. When things are going, everything goes wrong, you got to think about, okay, this is so ridiculous that I have to laugh about it. You got to laugh if you can't laugh. And to be able to laugh at yourself too. You know, I do a lot of that. You know, I don't take myself too seriously. You know, when I was going through the transition, um, to Sedona and my spiritual walkabout. One thing I think the way best to explain it is I let go of who I thought I was. And I think that's such a healthy place to be because we were given so many boxes. I'm an actor. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a boop a doop a deep. And I just kind of like just, you know, screw the boxes. I'm done. And I was like, now it's time to reinvent. And I just reinvented a life that's, you know, so fulfilling for me that I highly recommend reinvention. <laughs> That's very cool. And what type of shows do you develop for your TV station? Sedona Now TV is really um, a showcase to all our visitors. We reach about roughly 2 million people a year that come visit us overnight. And we reach them and we educated them on everything that's awesome to see and do in Sedona. See, you are the spokesperson. I am for real. Yes, exactly. You know, I, I just assigned a deal with ABC 15 down in Phoenix recently. And I started um, co-hosting segments about Sedona every Friday on their hit morning show, Sonoran Living. And they call me Mr. Sedona on the show. <laughs> when they introduce me, I work with all ladies down there. I love them. And um, Terry Olette, who's one of the hostesses, calls me now. She goes, Glenn Scarpelli's here, Mr. Sedona. So you, are, you hit it right on the nail there, Diane. I kind of am the spokesperson encouraging folks to come on up. We have so, we have such a vibrant community and we have so much to see and do here. That, that is my world. It's very beautiful. Thank you. I love it. I can't wait to share it with you. After all those years not acting, what drew you back to acting with Sacred Journeys? <sighs> well, you know, I left acting because I was gay and I couldn't be that. And now here we are, cut to these many years later. 30 years later. 30, 30. Yeah, and now like gay actors work. Isn't that amazing? Henny Penny, the sky didn't fall. You're gay and you could say it out loud. So, so that 
alone has been something that's been on my mind because the reason I left was for privacy. And now I'm so calm, like I'm, I'm so like, you know, okay in my own skin that I still miss the art of acting. And I want to go back to Audrey Hepburn at one point. I want to share something with you that actually applies to this. Sure. When, when, when I worked with Audrey, one of the things of specific advice that she gave me as an actor was never seek fame. She said, never seek fame. If you're an actor, you're an artist. And be the artist first. Right. And, on, and only be the artist. Like That's all you ever have to do. Like none of the, uh, the, the, the business part of show business is never your problem. Just be the artist. So I took that, you know, very dear, near and dear to my heart, that advice. And it applied for, you know, creating Sacred Journeys, the film I did with Mackenzie that's now on Amazon Prime. I'm so excited. Um, but it really came from, I missed that part of me that was, an artist that expressed myself that way. Right. I mean, I've kind of led my whole life creatively, like opening the TV station and doing World Wisdom Days. Like I have a creative... Behind the camera. Yeah. I mean, even Sedona now, I host the segments and it's still a host, but I'm playing, I'm, I'm not playing anything. I'm Glenn Scarpelli talking on camera, which is awesome. But, you know, the joy and the art, artistry of acting is to develop, to become someone else, to find those parts within you that could express a different person. And like, that's so exciting to me. And that's not a, um, a tool that I've had the, f the fortune to use, you know, over the last few decades. And it's one that I missed a lot. And I'll tell you, when I was on stage with Mackenzie interviewing Norman for the evening of Norman, of Norman Lear, that's when I realized I was going to make that movie. Literally in that moment, we started talking and Norman was talking about creativity and um, being true to yourself and our authentic selves and purposes in life. And we were having a very deep conversation in that context. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing World Wisdom Days next year. I'm going to develop a film. I need to act again. Like it was like this light bulb wow. right in that moment, talking to him with Max sitting right there. So that's kind of how that happened. And I had a buddy, a writer friend of mine in Los Angeles, who had said to me, listen, I want to write something for you. You should act again. Let's, let's, let's write a vehicle for you. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. But I never really did anything about it. Yeah. Well, he got a phone call. <laughs> and I was like, were you serious about writing a vehicle for me? And he's like, heck yeah. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. So he wrote it, but we developed it together. And we would meet and he would like kind of have these different ideas and, you know, and then one kind of started, was a real seed. And um, from there it grew. And as soon as I realized the female lead, Mac was my first phone call. She said yes, like in 30 seconds. Yeah. She didn't even she didn't read the script. She's like, honey, I love it. Let's do it. And it was in Sedona, and she, you know, comes to Sedona quite a bit. She also finds a lot of solace. Sedona is really one of those places where you can center. And if that's of interest to anyone, I highly recommend Sedona. It's really one of those places, and that's so important in the crazy world we live. Yeah, take time out. Take time out. Just get centered and quiet. Okay, I'm coming. 
Yeah, good, good, <laughs> good. That's it. And that's what she comes for too. Like she's like, I just need to be quiet sometimes. And, you know, just sit on a rock and look at some beauty. Like it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. I don't do that often. Well, it's it's not everybody does. Yeah, you gotta make a point of doing it, I think. It's a definite point to be made, exactly. It's you have to set the intention, let's put it that way. And the, the film really showcases Sedona really beautifully. Yeah, so part of what we decided to do was make a film about that takes place. It's not about Sedona, right. although Sedona is certainly a character in the film. Let's put it that way. But this film kind of, these characters could be other places if we wanted them to be. Right. We just wanted to, we wanted it to be about Sedona or take place in Sedona. So Mac was very into all that too. And then one of my dearest friends in the world, directed it his name is tracy boyd and he works on all the alexander payne movies with alexander he does a lot of uh, he's an associate producer and then also second unit director with alexander on like everything from the descendants to downsizing and with matt damon last year anyway so Tracy came in and really took the film to another level because i think we had gotten to a place where it was good but what Tracy did was bring each of our characters to so much more of a fulfilled three, four dimensional kind of character. He brought a richness and a tone. So Tracy really brought a lot to the film. So we did make the film, finally got made here in Sedona. We have wonderful investors. We had a beautiful distribution deal and it found its way to Amazon Prime. I share that with anyone that's listening. If you want a really sweet film, we really wanted to make a film that was sweet and charming and a film that really, you know, shares a little bit about growth, about how we can grow as people. Because one of the things that happens to my character is love comes into his life. And what happens when love comes into our lives is, you know, the possibilities are infinite. And that's kind of what the film is about. So it's about these real people who have these real problems showing how in the beginning life could be messy. But when we tap into the love we have in our lives, you know, real possibilities can occur. So that's kind of what the film is about. Cool. So the only problem with that is it's not available in Canada. I know. What's up with that? Hopefully soon. I've had this conversation with them because I have so many friends and on you know social through social media that are like, "What? Why can't we get it?" Yeah, I don't know. It has something to do with the rights issue with Amazon in Canada. I guess I don't know. Usually, everyone has a different contract for uh, same Netflix. They all have this thing where they're licensed for that country, right? Well, I, I'm going to put in my two cents again then, Diane. Get on that. Exactly. Well, that's amazing that you got to act again and also with Mackenzie. It was a good film in the sense of for characters because there really was only like four characters in the film, right? Four or five? Yes, yes. And Stephen, Stephen Wallum, who was on Nurse Jackie, who I absolutely adore, he plays my boyfriend in it. And um, he's so wonderful. So, I mean, it really became the experience of shooting Sacred Journeys was so fulfilling for me. Oh, my gosh. Like, it really just felt incredible to have that kind of, because, you know, they, I, I call it set love. You know, like, there's a thing that happens on the set. Family. Yeah, you become family. Even though you work together in a sh- relatively short period of time, 
there's just so much connection and that just feels so good. I just love it. And you know, recently, I don't know if you, you knew this, but I just did a cameo guest star role on the Netflix one day at a time. That's amazing. It's a good show, the new One Day at a Time. I love it. Me too. I love it. And, you know, I had kind of known that this was going to happen before it happened. Norman and his right arm, wonderful man who runs his company, Brent Miller, who's one of my dearest friends. I love him so much. He kind of shared with me that they were looking at creating it with a Latino family. And then Netflix came into play and then... You know, uh, Rita Moreno came into play and Justina Machado. They're all so good in the show. And um, and then when I got a call saying that they wanted to offer me this little cameo, I was so thrilled. And shooting that show was just incredible, working with Norman again. And Mackenzie's done a few. I think she did four this year. She has a little recurring role on the show. And she was not in the episode I was in, but came to the, the filming, the taping, tape, I still call it tape. I don't know what they call it now. I'm, I'm old school. Digital something. Digital <laughs> formatting night or whatever they call it. But tape night is what I call it. And she came to tape night to support me. And it was so wonderful. It's just so, so wonderful to be part of that whole family because it really is the extension of what we all started 40 years ago. Yeah, and now one of the daughters is gay. I know, I love it. Isabella Gomez, who plays Elena on the show, the Mackenzie character, is so wonderful. In fact, my little cameo is in a scene with her. I was so thrilled about that. And everyone on that show is just so incredible. The showrunners, Gloria Calderon-Colette and Mike Royce, have really done incredible with keeping up with the um, initial intent of the original show. You know, they're so talented and in such incredible writers and they honored what Norman started 40 years ago which was to really create relatable wonderful real characters that reflect the social situations of the day you know I, that's why I really think out of all the reboots this might be the best because I really don't even call it a reboot I call it a reinvention of the show it's its own thing but it stays with the same intent that the original had and i'm just i don't know maybe i'm partial but i think this one is the best of the best what is your big picture why why what is your why why do you do what you do what drives you what motivates you well you know that's a really good question and i've often thought of that in i i think of that often when i'm processing my um my time where I look inside. And I think, I think why is we're here for a short time and a good time. <laughs> that's my, that's my, that's my motto. We're here for a short time and a good time. So, you know, what I do and what I've, what I've created in my life is stuff that really brings me joy. Like I'm pretty joyous. You know, and I'm so grateful. I live in such gratitude. I think that the perfect relationship with ourselves is that of gratitude, to be grateful for the little things. So, you know, that's part of my philosophy is to be, 
I'm easy to please. And that is not something I always was. I was not always easy to please. I learned, I learned how to be because it's the simple things in life that are the most fulfilling. So my big why is finding things that expressing myself through ways that give me joy and then being grateful for those things. You know, that's, that's a big part of who I am. And I just, I know that there's no destination to that. So I just want to keep growing and growing in that and being a little better at it every day. That's amazing. So where can people find you online? I'm on all social media at Glenn Scarpelli. And that's G-L-E-N-N Scarpelli, S-C-A-R-P-E-L-L-I. Great. And you also mentioned that you own vacation rentals in Sedona. Tell me about that. So if, you know, I've been talking a lot about Sedona as being part of my, my, my joy. I think Sedona is a lot of part of my why. And I just want to invite everybody to come visit. And, you know, like I said, my partner, my life partner, Jerry Gilden and I, we have these beautiful Sedona vacation villas. They're homes that you could be rented here in Sedona. Um, they're, they're incredible locations. They're beautiful homes and just make for a great place to stay in Sedona. And that can be also found on SedonaVacationVillas.com. And I just want to make sure I invite everybody to come visit us. Wow. You even have a place to stay. <laughs> you have a place to stay. Exactly. <laughs> Mr. Sedona. Ah, what a pleasure talking to you, Diane. I've enjoyed this conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. I thank you for being so well-versed in my life. I think you know more about me than I do. Love it. (laughs) I really enjoyed talking to Glenn. It was so cool to hear all the stories about Al Pacino and Audrey Hepburn and the amazing talent that was on One Day at a Time. Some of the things he learned was Golda Meir saying, be the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And then Al Pacino's was never believe your own press. Audrey Hepburn said, never seek fame. If you are an actor, you are an artist and be the artist first. Only be the artist. The business side of show business is never your problem. Well, the things have changed, I want to add. I mean, love Audrey Hepburn. But I would add that today, an artist has to be very aware of the business side of show business. The days of only being an artist are gone if you actually want to make a living doing this. It was so amazing to hear how Audrey took him around the record store and educated him on why she loves classical music so much. And then also there is Norman Lear, who's 96 years old, and he's in the Book of World Records as the oldest living working producer ever in show business, which that's pretty cool. Glenn asked what his secret was, and he said laughter. You know, he surrounds himself with funny people, and he works a lot, at times having up to 10 shows on the air at the same time, but he called the stress joyful stress. You always have to laugh. For more detailed show notes and some cool photos of Glenn, you can take a look at dianefoy.com slash 003, and I'll have links to all that we talked about there. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your fellow creative artists. 
Thanks for listening to Sing, Dance, Act, Thrive. Be sure to join the mailing list at dianefoy.com to gain access to exclusive bonus content, a weekly newsletter, and an invitation to our private Facebook group of purpose-driven performing artists and industry influencers. Mm-hmm.